Welcome to Pivot, a podcast for church leaders, co-sponsored by Luther Seminary's Faith Lead and Lead. Welcome to Pivot. I'm Terry Elton from Luther Seminary. And I'm Louise Johnson. And this morning we have with us Pastor Krista Compton, a dear friend of mine and a person I know to be a very thoughtful, reflective, and faithful leader in our church. I've had the privilege of knowing Krista for a number of years and working together, in fact, teaching leadership. And so I know that Krista comes with a great deal of wisdom and humor about the world we're in and also just some really sage counsel and good stories. So we're really privileged to have you with us, Krista, today. And I wonder if you'd begin by just saying something, tell us a little bit about the context in which you're serving, not only your congregation, but just, you know, the wider community, because I know that's going to be part of our conversation too. Well, first of all, thank you for the invitation to be with you today. I've really been looking forward to this because it's nice to have these opportunities to step back in the midst of what's been a very long and crazy year and do a little reflection. And I tend to enjoy doing that reflection in good company. So thank you. I serve at Gloria Day Lutheran Church in Chatham, New Jersey. And Gloria Day, I like to describe us as a a small and vibrant congregation. We're just outside New York City. So we have a lot of folks in the congregation who, back when this was possible, were regular commuters into the city for work. So that, you can imagine the demands on time and energy that that involves. For a small congregation, just under 300 members, we have a very intergenerational congregation. So I like to say we have folks from newborns to 90-somethings and and pretty much everything in between. We enjoy having lots of families and kids of different ages in the congregation and and figuring out how to make those connections in the community as well. Krista, thank you. Would you also say something about your background too? Oh, well, so I come to ministry. I've been an ordained minister of Word and Sacrament in the ELCA for coming up on eight years now. Prior to that, I have been an educator and in many ways still think of myself as an educator. I spent the first decade of that life as a high school teacher in Columbia, South Carolina, Richland Northeast High School. Go Cavaliers. And then I spent the next phase of life as a teacher educator. So working on a PhD at the School of Education at Stanford and working with the teacher education program there for a period of seven years. And Krista, I know, won't brag about herself, but she was actually South Carolina's Teacher of the Year. And in that way, was invited in to do a lot of speaking and mentoring with other teachers. And so she really is, and I know her to be in in terms of our work together in leadership, just a brilliant teacher and very thoughtful in terms of how she goes about ministry. It's really a big shaper for you. So thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that. So, you know, I don't know if you've heard, but we're in a pandemic. I know that that has pushed many of us to do uh, ministry in some different ways. And I wonder, as you reflect back on the past year and all that that's brought with political divisions and racial tensions and so on and so forth, I wonder if you just reflect a little bit on a significant pivot that you've had to do and uh, maybe some of what you did and what you learned from it. I think you've highlighted something that makes this extraordinarily complex which is we'll throw out a word like pandemic. And in in retrospect, I realize that that word is far too monolithic (laughs) to represent what has really been parallel and intersecting layers of complexity. As I was thinking about this, so much of what's been hard about all of it is the open-ended nature of what we've called the pandemic. 
that when we started, I, I think I had a hunch at the beginning that it was going to be longer than what we might have suspected early on. I never imagined it would be this long. And one of the powerful things about having this reckoning with regard to racial reconciliation and injustice and, and all of those attendant issues alongside the pandemic is it's been an important reminder, especially to those of us who are white leaders in this church, that for our siblings of color, there has been a longstanding open-ended struggle and a daily challenge, a daily assault on human dignity that has existed for centuries. And so to some degree, it's been appropriately reorienting for all of us to consider these multiple layers of challenge. I think one of the, the obvious lessons for me has been the extraordinary power of collaboration, that we just cannot be isolated in this. And that's collaboration within the congregation, with congregational leadership. For me, I've always been really blessed with wonderful ecumenical and interfaith colleagues in our community here, as well as wonderful Lutheran colleagues in our cluster, in our synod. And it's been a blessing to have new chances to do things together. You know, so our cluster early on decided we would collaborate on a Good Friday service. And that had both spiritual and practical benefits. You know, it, it allowed us to support one another through navigating Holy Week that first time around. And it helped us sort of divide the weight of trying to figure that out and carry pieces of it separately that then could come together into something really powerful. And then most recently, our collaboration with civic and faith leaders in our community came together to offer a service of remembrance for the people who have died of COVID in the past year. And it was a real blessing to be able to offer that space of worship for our community. And again, not to do that alone, to collaborate with my colleagues in planning it and, and preparing it and leading it so that we could offer some kind of space for communal grief. And that's the other thing we're learning is that we need those spaces in whatever way we can find them and provide them for naming the grief and the struggle. Krista, thank you. I, I wonder if you'd say a little bit more about the process of how you got to that place of deciding together that you would offer this service. I mean, how, maybe some of how you worked within your own congregation and with the community at large and why you decided this was a, a priority at this point in time in our communal life. I'd just be curious to hear some of the thinking behind that. Yes, we were very fortunate early on that some of our local leadership, the mayor and the borough administrator and a couple members of our borough council started convening a weekly roundtable via Zoom. And so we've gathered weekly on Thursday afternoons for about an hour for conversation, for sharing of information. This is where we would often get updates about the local numbers in terms of infections and hospitalizations and deaths. And out of that conversation grew a number of different opportunities. Very early on, we decided to cooperate with one another on a weekly food distribution. And I won't go into all of the details of that, but it's been throughout the pandemic, a Wednesday time to distribute boxes of produce and bread and other contributions from local partners, sustainable lunches. And then we decided early on to add an optional prayer station at the end of that. So my colleagues and I have taken turns being there at the prayer station. And that has been a powerful reminder that 
in all of the stresses of the pandemic, which include a lot of economic insecurity for people, there are many other things that pre-existed the pandemic that continue. Struggles with mental health, other health concerns, access to health care, child care, worries about aging parents, you know, all of it. It's, it's just so palpable and real. So the food distribution has been a really wonderful opportunity. It's, it's peopled each week by representatives from a variety of congregations, as well as some of those, those civic leaders. So it's kind of an all hands on deck opportunity. And a few weeks ago, we were anticipating the very sobering threshold of crossing 500,000 deaths in the United States. We talked for some time about the possibility of doing some kind of public remembrance, and we decided to have it coincide as, as closely as we might with that particular milestone. We ended up scheduling it exactly on the day when we hit that 500,000 mark. So I never would have chosen this to be the circumstance under which we built these collaborations. But I am endlessly grateful that they have emerged and I think we can continue to build on them. Well, thank you for that. I particularly am taken by when you said sharing the weight. Yeah. And not only of Good Friday, which is sharing the weight for religious professionals, but sharing the weight as a community, right? How that's played out with regard to that. So that's one thing that stood out from what you just said. The second thing that stood out for me was the collaboration around the food distribution and that you as the pastors or the religious leaders, we're going to put yourself in a chair. You're going to put yourself on the front line. We're not going to just rally people to be doing food distribution, but to be listening to, we talked a lot this last season about the longings and losses of people, to hear the depth and breadth of what's breaking people's hearts and what's their weight. Yes. And so there's that sense of sharing multiple weight, right? On different kind of levels. I want to go back to something that you said around complexity. And what triggered for me as you were talking was each of these things of this pandemic, how have you navigated the complexity of those layers of tension. Because as I listen to leaders, and some are doing it forward thinking, and some are doing it responding, just trying to keep up, because the tensions are so palatable in their context, things that come with that. How have you personally found ways to navigate those complexities in your ministry context? I wish I had easy answers for that. I think it has often been trying to stay in that stance of learner, which is how I'm wired to some degree. And some of the hardest kind of learning is when I'm putting myself in a place to try to understand what someone is thinking or how someone is responding to the current moment when it's someone who's responding in a very different way than I am and sometimes with very different information because their sources of information are not the ones that I'm attending to. I struggle to do that, to stay in that place of openness to understanding where somebody is and to try to get to a deeper place of what's really the song beneath the words, to use the language of adaptive leadership. 
And often the common denominator really is fear, fear in the face of uncertainty. And that's important for me to hear as a pastor, because even if I don't necessarily agree with what's motivating your fear, I still want to be present with you in it. I think that's been one of the hardest things is being someone who tries to be a proclaimer of hope throughout this time, but to do that in a way that as much as possible is, of course, tethered (laughs) to the good news of what we have in Scripture and in our faith, but doesn't come across as disconnected from reality. I've been thinking a lot lately about that line in the ordination service where we we say we're not going to offer people illusory hope. (laughs) And I've been pondering a lot about, well, what's the difference between illusory hope and real hope? So I think as much as possible, being present with people wherever they are in this journey and whatever is bringing them grief or struggle or pain or loss, trying to hear it focusing in on the essence of something. And you just did it there in such a beautiful way of talking about our kind of collective fear, right? In an interesting way, while there is so much division that we have a common narrative in our country in a way that we haven't had in many, many, many years, right? And so it's an interesting piece, right? Theologically, and I think spiritually to discern what are the common threads in that? And then how do we speak words of hope in those that, as you so wisely say, don't disregard the reality in front of us, but in fact, you know, name them. You know, I think one of the things that that the pandemic has done is it's accelerated and exacerbated, as you so well said, lots of the things that were already happening to us, right? So we think about the incredible difficulty for our sisters and brothers who are people of color. What I'm wondering about is as we're as we're kind of unearthing this kind of thing and I think exposing some of the foundations on which our faith has been built, right? Some of the things that I think are difficult to let go of but maybe give us a chance to build our hope on something new, something different, something real, something solid. I I wonder if what you're thinking is in terms of, you know, giving voice to those foundations in new ways. Yeah, I I don't know that I have easy answers to this. I don't think anyone does. I think what I am feeling the most right now is how maybe this time has been preparing us to live where we have always lived, which is in a time of not knowing. I think maybe we have operated under a kind of illusion for a long time that we knew exactly what the church was about and what it was here for. And it was about being X, Y, and Z and providing these programs and these services. And in my more cynical moments, I've worried that we've become a version of what I might call concierge church, you know, where people just come and pick from a menu of available services that we can provide. And I think what has been opened up for me in this time is a way of sort of getting back to the essentials of how do we connect with God and with each other as community? How do we walk together in celebration and in struggle? How do we continue to learn and deepen our faith? How do we go to scripture again and again and sit there and try to hear what God is saying to us there in all circumstances? And how in all of that do we recognize that we cannot predict what will happen? 
We don't know how many days we are given. We don't know what the future looks like. On March 1st of last year, if you had asked me what plans I had and what I was preparing for even a month from then or two months from then or for the summer, I would have listed a whole bunch of things that did not happen in any of the ways that I would have described them to you. And while I certainly don't hope that we will be experiencing a global pandemic every year, I think we're always in a circumstance of not knowing what comes next tomorrow or a month from now or a year from now. So how do we live as people of faith in the midst of that total unknowing and total uncertainty? And how do we stay focused on what we do know, which is promised us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus? Yeah, I appreciate that. And I think our work of being church has so focused for a long time on what we can do. How will we build the church What future are we setting the church up for? And way too little on what God is doing. And like you said, the center of our identity is a pretty disruptive story that doesn't come with certainty. And yet I think we've packaged the faith, the experience of church in way more certainty than is real. So part of what I'm curious about is I really am am taken by the idea of the gospel message as being something to hold on to in the midst of a life of uncertainty. And I think to the learner posture that you talked about and that vulnerability that goes from listening and being curious with other people, I'm wondering if there's a spiritual dimension to that Take that a little bit further and say, is there a spiritual practice or is there something that's been helpful for you to say, remind yourself, or at least I would need to be reminded, yeah, God, you exist even when I don't know, right? You're still present. You're still up to something even when I can't see it. Keep me in this. Don't let my humanity cover my eyes. Is there something that's been helpful for you? For me personally, some of the standard practices that we might look to as spiritually nourishing. The wheels just kind of came off of those for me early on in all of this. I have turned a lot to poetry. And I think poetry in particular, both reading it and making some attempts to write it, (laughs) that has been very nourishing for me because there's something about poetry that is accustomed to trying to hold complex things in tension with one another and which tries to do that with as few words as possible. So in that sense, that feels helpfully prayerful to me. (laughs) How do we try to get rid of the extraneous words and get to the heart of the matter? So I have really loved reading poetry, attending online poetry events and readings and kind of being immersed in language, which has helped me be immersed in scriptural language as well. I found myself turning to scriptural passages that are kind of, for me, the old poetic favorites. A Psalm 46, God is our refuge and strength. Or that wonderful passage from Isaiah 43, the piece about I've called you by name and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. 
I had in the early months of the pandemic, my pandemic wall, I had a blank space on my wall in the living room. And I just started sticking up pictures, quotations, poems, just memes, bits of wisdom that, you know, were swirling all about on social media or among friends and text chains and would put them up on index cards and post-it notes and such. And one of those was from Psalm 139, that piece about if I take the wings of the morning and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. So there's assurances of being held and being named. I love that. That totally resonated with me. I went to Psalms. I've been working through Psalms and some of those same things have stood out. What's interesting to me, and I wonder if you have a response to this, is I can hear it in different times and in different emotional states, and it speaks to me anew. So just wonder if there's a story or something that you had that experience with. Yeah, that's a good question. Curiously, one of the stories that I keep circling back to in a number of ways in this time is the story of Hagar in the wilderness. And I'm not even sure I can put words to precisely the reason for it, but there's something about being in a version of wilderness that is in no way idealized because we tend to do a lot of metaphorical things with a lot of the other wildernesses in scripture. But in my experience, we don't do that as much with the Hagar story and the level of desperation that she feels and also the boldness with which she cries out in that moment feels vulnerable and real to me in what we've been experiencing. But I think about as someone who lives alone in this pandemic and has navigated most of my connections to other people from that space of living alone, there is something about her isolation, the sense in which she does not have that position of power and belonging in the traditional family that gets lauded even in the rest of scripture, right? You know, the Hagar story ends up getting relatively lost in what comes later. And I just have a sense of fascination about her. I wonder if I might shift a little bit to others who I think you you have connected with in an interesting way, right? As we've made the pivot as congregations and as a church to to the digital atmosphere. You know, I've had the the privilege on occasion of tuning in to some of the worship things you're offering and other things. And I wonder if you might speak a little to your experience of the digital congregation and particularly people who have are maybe new to your congregation or to even to a life of faith. I have found the online worship experience both disorienting in many ways, because obviously it's strange to be sitting at your dining room table, which I was for the first several months leading worship on Facebook Live. And then now in recent months, we've been live streaming with a small team from our sanctuary. So still very small group of people that you're there with in the flesh. I have not felt as disconnected from people in that form of worship, as I know many other people have. You know, would I much rather have us all there together in person? Yes, of course I would. And we'll get there. But when I'm preaching, especially, I have a profound sense that I am talking to real people and real people I know, and, and also maybe people I don't know, because 
it's out there. So it's fair game. So some of my favorite Monday, Tuesday emails are either a comment about something from the service from somebody in our congregation, and we can have a little back and forth around that. And then sometimes it's also the incredibly surprising text message or email from someone I had no idea was watching. You know, sometimes it's someone from the congregation who's moved away. Sometimes it's a relative of someone in the congregation or a college roommate of somebody <laughs> or, or somebody who just kind of stumbled upon us. And, and sometimes those are openings of sort of pastoral care conversations. Uh, people who got some sense from our worship that it would be okay to reach out with some questions or some worries. And that's a beautiful thing. I love that our digital sanctuary has ended up being a lot bigger than our physical sanctuary at 300 John Pike in Chatham. But I do have a lot of wondering about what does this look like over the long haul? What is sustainable in terms of our collective time and energy? Will it be possible to do things the way we always did them and do them in all these new ways and to live out the implications of both of those? That doesn't sound reasonable to me. So I think we're going to have to continue to have these hard conversations and clarifications about what is most important and how do we worship and live our communal life in such a way that reflects those priorities. But I also think there's an interesting opportunity for the church to lead. So I I think about your work organizing with your colleagues a communal service of grief. And I wonder, as you think about understanding that you don't know what's going to happen, but I wonder what your reflections are in terms of like what some of those openings or opportunities are that you see where the church can really kind of take leadership into the future in a way that we haven't been able to before. I've always thought that the church ought to be a place where we name and struggle with the hard things together. And that sounds really grim to a lot of people. So I think we also, we do it, you know, in community, because if we do it in community and relationship, then we're also doing it while sort of laughing about things and relishing the shared humor and the stories and watching kids in the congregation grow up and celebrating their gifts and, you know, all those things that being in community together can offer. But we can be a place, and that community service of remembrance was was a reminder of this, where we name what often the rest of the world would prefer to avoid. We name that death happens and grief happens. We name the struggles that come with addiction or mental illness. We name the struggles of sexism and racism and homophobia and xenophobia and transphobia and all of, you know, we just can reckon in a really honest way with what in our tradition we would call sin, right? We can name those things as what they are. We can call the thing what it is, as Luther would say. And you can't contend with something until you can name it. So I have always longed for church to be a place where together we can grapple with all of those hard things in many different ways, drawing on the resources of our tradition and drawing on the resources that we all bring. But, you know, we have to resist the urge that the church has to do what the world does, which is, well, let's just play nice. Let's just all enjoy being together and having the potlucks and the coffee hours. And let's not 
talk about anything hard because we'd rather just leave that at the door. And I completely get that impulse. I completely get it. But I also think that people are longing for safe places of connection and community in which to grapple with these things. I really appreciate that, the word you used, the unveiling. And I think where church as an institution or as an organization has gotten into trouble when it's tried to veil sin. And sin is not something we have to be afraid of in the church. And yet we operate like the world, like you said. But I also, you noted, we grapple with sin in trusted community. And I think just like we don't like to unveil sin, it is such hard work to do the real community building needed to have a container to do that work. That whole sense of sin and work of relationship. For me, that's the picture of a cruciform community. That's what the church could be, right? We don't have to worry about the salvation isn't ours. It's all God's and we're, it's all by grace. It's a gift. So what if we were in this together? What if we could let our veil down and be alongside each other in this? And this was a safe place. We're very far from what you describe and what I long for. So I want to acknowledge that. Because as you're reminding us, it calls us to a kind of vulnerability that isn't just rare, it's countercultural. <laughs> you know, I, for the most part, the communities from which our parishioners come are places where there's a lot of pressure for everything to appear okay, you know, to hold on to the facades and the masks. And it is heartbreaking sometimes to know because of my role and the conversations that I have with people to be aware of how people are struggling with something that's very real and to know how powerful it would be for them to connect with someone else who is struggling in a similar way or who has that as part of their story. And yet we haven't yet created the space or the way for them to arrive at that connection. So I have a lot of dreams about what that might look like. And I'm still, I think, struggling all the time with how, how to get there and where the spirit might shake us up a little bit and help us into that place of vulnerability, which I will freely admit does not come naturally to me either, right? I think we're all, as pastoral leaders, we're, we're kind of trained to put forward a face of complete competence in every way, right? And, and that's probably been heightened during the pandemic. You know, we need to have the answers. We need to have a plan. We need to get that online worship together. We need to speak and lead and guide and counsel and preach and do all of these things in an exceptionally competent way, even though there is a sustained year-long condition of collective trauma that we ourselves are experiencing. <laughs> so I, I think there's a call to us as pastoral leaders to try to lean into that vulnerability ourselves. And I wonder if you didn't just give us a little nugget of a way forward where two or three gather in my name and there, right? The sense of small, more intimate communities of people longing for it. Yes. And, and saying, I don't know. Like, it's okay to show up saying, I don't know. 
I've heard stories from many pastors. One in, that rings in my head is a mother of triplet boys that were all homeschooling, you know, and she's doing a redevelopment congregation. And she said, and then they had a big death right before Easter. And she said, my Easter sermon was not, you know, Easter bunnies and pastel colors and all the good. And she said, I had more comments on people thanking me for my vulnerability and naming this grief that was just palpable in the congregation. I had a little bit of an experience of that with this year's Ash Wednesday sermon, which for me historically has been one of my favorite sermons of the year to write and to preach. (laughs) Because again, I, I really am drawn to the parts that are built into our church year to name those hard things, to name death in particular, to name mortality and sin and our need for God. And this year, it just, I was struggling at every turn. And I had come up with, you know, maybe two thirds of a sermon was okay (laughs) in terms of your Ash Wednesday themes. And I realized at some point, I was like, oh, I know I'm starting to understand why I'm resisting this. And it's because this is the last significant day of the church calendar that was left untouched, unadapted. So once we do this one, we will have done all of the major moments in the church calendar. And I, I think naming that was freeing in some ways because I realized that this was just part of the struggle that was living in my own body and mind and spirit. And I ended up, you know, we were doing a live stream that evening and the hour was approaching and the sermon was still unfinished. And I I probably can only do this once in a blue moon, but I ended up essentially leaving it unfinished and naming it and naming why I wasn't able to finish it. And in some ways, that's the kind of appropriate Ash Wednesday thing, right? That our endings are not predictable, nor are they tidy. They're messy. And, and especially right now, whatever comes next is totally open-ended and uncertain. And yet, what can we be certain of? And let's focus on that. You know, it's, it's hard to admit even that struggle as a, as a preacher, you know, you wanted to have the nice, powerful ending. Not quite, they lived happily ever after, but at least something that feels satisfying to people. And it just wasn't there. I love that you took the opportunity to just model the uncertainty and the unknowing, right? In the in the midst of it, right? Like what a profound way to embody the gospel. I think, you know, more and more preaching looks looks more like Ash Wednesday, right? Like it looks like our collective admission of our need for God and an uncertainty about what resurrection looks like, a hope and a promise and a, and a confidence that resurrection comes, but an uncertainty about how we get there and what that looks like. I wonder as we wrap this up today, I wonder if you have any last words of counsel, particularly as you think about your colleagues in ministry. For me, part of it has been the gift of trusting the people in our congregation and the various really wonderful ways that people have led and been creative and innovative in our congregation. And I haven't even talked about, we had this wonderful team of people who we initially convened as what we were calling a regathering, 
committee. Most places have convened some version of that to, to provide an advisory role around how do we do worship and what do we do with the building. That group really very quickly changed into was a group of people with really creative ideas about various ways we might try gathering within the safe parameters. So they created a whole bunch of events called Get Out with Gloria Day. And that some of those were hikes. Some of those were you know purely social, bring your lawn chair and your mask and a beverage and we'll circle up in the parking lot or on the front lawn of the church and hang out. Some of them had a service component, bring a donation for the food distribution, bring toiletries for uh, the shelter for people who are experiencing homelessness. And when you drop those off in somebody's trunk, bring your chair and your mask and we'll sit around and, and connect there. Uh, and so I was just really so humbled and excited by their creativity and how they they just pulled all of that off and helped people find ways to stay connected during this time. So I think trusting, trusting that you don't have to be the only person who's driving everything. <laughs> you don't have to be the, you know, the sole over-functioning, stressed out, stressed and stretched beyond all reasonable limits leader, because we are all tempted to be that even in the best of times. So sharing the the load and the responsibility. And, and I think for me, really remembering that my primary role is a spiritual and theological one. I've appreciated our friends and colleagues with the Faithful Innovation Project at Luther for constantly reminding us of that, you know, that in a time when, yes, when we've had to attend to a lot of logistics and adaptations upon adaptations in a very practical sense that ultimately our job as leaders is to provide spiritual and theological wisdom to the extent that that's possible, leadership and guidance that comes from that place of faith. As we lead in unknowing and uncertain times, there are things we can hold on to. And I like that collaboration and sharing the load on multiple levels that you've highlighted in this time. Thank you for joining us. Next week, we get to go from the East Coast to the West Coast and uh, hear about how some things are happening out in Seattle, in, in Renton, actually Washington, with Pastor Casey Hahn. And for those of you that haven't joined us, go check out the online community at the Faith Lead Learning Lab, where you can either jump in and add your comments or feedback from our episodes or join with conversation with others that are trying to navigate these pivots in the midst of these crazy, unpredictable times. So thanks for being with us today, Krista, and we look forward to next week with Casey Hahn. Thanks for joining us for this episode of our Pivot Podcast. For more leadership resources from LEAD, you can go to waytolead.org or from Faith Lead, go to faithlead.luthersem.edu.